Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. This is Mark Yarm, the author of Everybody Loves Our Town and Oral History of Grunge, and you're listening to Whatever Nevermind. to welcome to the program uh, the editor, producer, and host of the podcast, Input Output. Uh, a writer, you, you, you have quite a few credits, so I, if I got this, I pulled this off your website, so let me know if I missed anything. Uh, your work in the past can be found from anything from the New Yorker, the New York Times, Wired, Wall Street Journal Magazine, and Rolling Stone, and probably most importantly to this show, you are the author of Everybody Loves Our Ta- Town, an oral history of grunge. Mark Yarm is the person I'm talking about. Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you, Baco. Appreciate you uh, having me on the show. That's quite a rundown, man. Uh, you stay busy, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, yeah. Spread out over a number of years, so it's it's not like uh, not too crazy. <laughs> um, now we the I mean Cobras and Fire. We follow you on Twitter, and a few hours after you uh, actually agreed to be on the show, you tweeted out simply today sucked. So uh, I, I just want to apologize. <laughs> oh, I, that was unrelated to the request. Okay. I, I guarantee. I, I can't remember why, but I, I mean, I think it's just like post-election. Mal- I mean, I'm happy. I should say I'm happy with the election results overall. Mm-hmm. But um, just kind of that post-election malaise and the, the, it's getting dark here in New York, like at 430. Yeah. It's just uh, and we're entering into a COVID winter, so. Uh, and there might have been more specific things going on, but uh, it wasn't related to your request. Okay, well, that's good to hear. I'm always about. happy to get a podcast request. <laughs> right on. Um, well, why don't we start a little bit with uh, you telling us, uh, the audience, a bit about you, and how, how did you end up writing the oral history for Grunge? Sure. 
Uh, I used to be a senior editor at Blender Magazine, which was a competitor of Rolling Stone print magazine, if you recall those. And I was a subscriber. Was... Oh, you were? Mm-hmm. Wow. For a long time? At least two or three years. I, from issue one, um, I don't remember what exactly I dropped out. Okay. Because wow, wasn't it, um, it was tied into, um, not FHM, uh, what was the other one? Uh, Maxim? Maxim? Yeah, it kind of birthed out of Maxim, but it became its own its own thing. Um, by the time I was there at the very end of the run, which okay. was, I think it folded in 2009. So I was there and around toward the end, I did an oral history of sub pop records, which at the time was celebrating its 20th anniversary. Now it's more like 30 years. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I did that oral history and a, a book agent contacted me and said, would you like to expand this to an oral history of grunge as a whole? And, I foolishly agreed, and I spent the next couple of years working on this uh, book, Everybody Loves Our Town, and ended up interviewing over 250 people from all walks, from you know, from sort of the hangers-on up to some of the, the big stars, to up to Courtney Love-style people, and um, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was, it's, it's been almost, uh, next year will be... A decade since it came out, it was time to be released, mostly to to Nevermind's uh, anniversary, okay. And um, which I guess will be thirty years old next Unreal. year. So it's it's amazing how how the decade has passed. But yeah, I mean, there's not uh, not a month or two that goes by where somebody isn't contacting me to talk about grunge or, or it's uh, something. Uh, I I guess I'll always be associated with, even though I, you know, obviously uh, uh, coming, I had a very outsider uh, vantage on the scene. I wasn't involved in it at all, except as a listener. Um, so people think I'm from Seattle. I'm not from Seattle. I'm from from the East Coast, born in Connecticut, live in New York, Brooklyn. So uh, totally different vantage point. But I think that that sort of helped in some ways the outside vantage point. So you were, you were a fan of the music scene, or uh... yeah, yeah, I definitely. I mean, I was uh, I was in college when Nevermind and Ten hit, and uh, big listener of college radio and what I guess what was alternative radio at the time. And um, I mean, I wasn't like a subscriber to the sub pop singles or you know club or anything like that, but I was uh, certainly. Uh, listening to those bands right. and enjoying them and enjoying the, I mean, it was, it was, it was, you know, there was a very soap opera ish until it turned really dark. Obviously there was a very soap opera ish, uh, tone to a lot of these things with, you know, big characters like Kurt and Courtney and Eddie and Lane and Chris Cornell. And, you know, it was, um, got dark a little, later obviously right um i mean maybe we'll 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 get to that uh sure with um with with some of that the 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 characters and things of that nature were you anybody that like because i know some people were like "Eh, i don't know how to i'm not phrasing this very well like the 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 nirvana versus pearl jam kind of thing were you more all-encompassing and pulling it in or uh was it kind of something that you actually had your favorite band and kind of back then it was a big thing i don't know if you remember that yeah, that was uh, that. That. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was a big divide between. Now it seems it's been over the years. It doesn't seem like such a big deal. The mm. Nirvana verse. I mean, especially since Pearl Jam, obviously, um, 
they're still around. Yeah. Uh, but, but I mean, that was a huge divide. I was definitely on the Nirvana side of things. Ooh. And I probably still am, to be to be honest, yeah. Um, and uh, um, they, they seemed, they were the quote-unquote more authentic of the bands, you know. Uh, even though, obviously, they were both on major labels and both sort of signed the same deals and 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 went in similar directions but one one band was seen as more authentic than the other for better or worse yeah and there's reasons for that i actually would say even though i'm probably more of a pearl jam guy i kind of concede the point there um uh you know i was a freshman in college when nirvana broke and uh so it was the perfect time and the perfect music for me you know and i've i won't get into this too much because this has come up on the show enough for people to know but you know i was a like a a headbanger metalhead during high school and and Uh that that stuff related to me then but as i grew up and my my brain kind of you know uh, became more more mature somewhat anyway that music didn't connect with me lyrically and and so nirvana and uh like i said pearl jam the the big ones at first and then other bands after the fact of course but it just spoke to me a little more and it just seemed like a right time for the change i just i don't know thoughts i mean yeah i mean that was the transitional period the transit uh hair metal was i mean there, there there is and i think i get into it in the book a little bit you know sort of the idea or the myth that grunge killed hair metal where <laughs> you know a lot of people you know but, but uh, you know a lot of people argue that it didn't in fact kill hair metal because hair metal was already naturally receding no. um no, no, I'll, I'll pause you for a second there that's one question i ask everybody that when we're doing an album episode is like you know we, we do side one and side two and in between i have like these stock questions i ask everybody so do you want to just what I'll ask you. What's, did what's did grunge question? kill? Did grunge kill hair metal? You kind of answered it, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I answered it there. I, I don't. I don't believe it did. I, I mean, it might have hastened its demise, <laughs> but it was already well. You know, it was already kind of waning by that mm. point. Yeah, and you know, as I I tried to interview a bunch of hair metal guys for the for the or a few. Uh, you got Brett Michaels. I, I got Brett Michaels, and Brett Michaels was kind of like you know the big bands like Poison and Bon Jovi and Def Leppard, and I mean there's st- all those bands are still around, so yeah. it obviously didn't kill them off, and they're they're still here. Nirvana's not here anymore, right? So um, you know I think it was just going you know these things wax and wane, and uh, I think at that point hair metal was definitely on the decline and, and you know i think people were maybe hungering for something that felt more authentic or you know I, I i can't say exactly but um hair metal had seen it so i don't think it killed it but it might it might have helped it might have helped but i think hair metal would have yeah i mean every musical every music every musical movement sort of waxes and wanes on its own <laughs> Yeah, but uh, so that would be my answer to the question. Well, let's talk about the book a little bit. I'm a big fan of the sure. oral history. Uh, the, there was one on the cool. replacements that I loved, um, and it, you know, it's just kind of that that same kind of vibe. It almost seems almost like it's more challenging to do it that way because there's a lot of organization involved in this. Would you do you? Th- I don't know. You did. Would you find it easier or harder? Do you think now that you've done one? They are very difficult to do, or very difficult to do well. Um, because you're so reliant on, you know, I mean, that, that was the biggest pain in the ass was getting people to talk to me or hunting people down or finding people or getting through to them. And, uh, I mean, it, it's pretty common format at this point. Mm-hmm. 
but to do it well, a lot of people don't do it really do it well. I mean, you have to have, I, I would hope that people reading mine would see that there's a, you know, a flow to it. A, I mean, I didn't use any, a lot of oral histories do stuff like they'll have interstitial, um, descriptions and mine just is like, I do an intro and then from then on, it's just all the voices of the people mm-hmm. I interviewed. So, and sometimes that takes a lot of work going back to people, getting the phone blanks, etc. So, that's one thing I wondered: was there a lot of times where you get to a certain point of the book and you go, "Fuck, I gotta talk to such and such again"? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely had to follow up with a lot of people when you hear a story from them, and you have to check it out with them, and you know, so that could lead to multiple. I mean, I say I interviewed two hundred fifty people, but a lot of them I interviewed multiple times. So right. that's a lot of interviews. Any of them done in person? Uh, yeah, a number of them. I, I went out to Seattle like three times, maybe three or four times and, um, did a bunch there, did some in New York. Uh, A lot of them were on the phone. Um, so a mixture of phone and in person. Okay. Um, well, when you're doing these, right, a lot of these stories, especially in this one, um, there are so many intermixing characters, if I'm saying that right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, in, in one person's story, you might have se- people who are in several different stories. From an organizational standpoint, that seems like a nightmare. It's like, you know, because you are keeping it in order, kind of, there is a certain, um, like, it's, it goes in chronologically, but also kind of starts and stops per band a little bit, especially at the beginning. How do how do you like because you're talking to one person who gives you like something for four different segments, you know? Right. Um, well, I mean, I, I sort of had I had to you know I had these uh, index cards where I kind of mapped it all out, and um, <laughs> I mean, basically, I started with uh, the six bands who were in the Deep Six compilation, mm-hmm. which came out on CZ Records in the mid '80s, and it was. A few bands you recognize, maybe a few bands you don't. I mean, the the most famous being Soundgarden. Melvins were on there, Green River, Malfunction, U-Men, and Skinyard. So I interviewed you know people from all six of those bands, and that was kind of my year zero sort of. Yeah, okay. starting there. I started with the U-Men, um, who has I recount in the book did this great prank at the Seattle uh, mural amphitheater where they lit the moat on fire, which was, you know, I kind of wanted to have a big boom of a start. So I started the book there. You can see pictures of it in the book itself. And um, yeah. And and from there show how all those bands, I mean, you look at a band like green river, they, you know, they basically led to mud honey, Pearl jam, mother love bone as well. So, So, I mean, it was super incestuous scene, which is also very helpful in making a book like this because it was so, everything was so interwoven. Right. Um, you know, all these people knew each other. It's like, they, there aren't really, I mean, people ask me all the time, could there ever be a scene like Seattle? Well, I mean, the answer is maybe, but probably not. Because I mean, I don't know. It's just because there was, this was obviously pre internet and people were just, stuck in this place this place that was not the cosmopolitan place it is now uh and they had nothing to do except hang out with each other make music obviously the rain is always cited as a factor you know keeping you indoors and honing your craft and they all before they became famous sort of uh cross-pollinated with each other so (laughs) that's what an interesting way to put it yeah so there was a lot so 
Um, yeah, I don't. You know, people ask me all the time if Seattle-like scene could happen again, and it doesn't seem very likely. I mean, it could, it could, but uh, doubtful. Yeah, it, well, I mean, there really hasn't been a scene since of any kind. You know what I mean? Not even something on a smaller degree. This was probably the last legitimate kind of scene, I think. There have been movements more than scenes, I yeah. guess. I mean, there have been, um, you know, like uh, um, electronic music, obviously, followed mm. that. And, and um, you know, there, there's all sorts Justin of... Bieber. Justin Bieber, but he's... <laughs> I think he... He defies categorization or, or being part of. He's definitely not part of a scene unless you count him as. Well, the internet. You know, who, he was discovered on people, YouTube. Yeah, people who emerge from YouTube yeah. would be a scene, I guess. But that, but those people aren't like <laughs> going to the same clubs night after night, getting drunk together. Right. Doing, no. You know, it's it's a whole different thing. I mean, uh, TikTok stars are. Well, I yeah, guess there TikTok you go. stars now they all live in the same house, but. <laughs> uh, a lot of them, you know, they have those those houses, but um, I don't know. It it doesn't seem likely that regional scenes like that will really um, be a thing of the future. But maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, well, well, I actually hope so, but uh, I, I I'm not optimistic any more than you are. But uh, I tried to come up with a clever way to phrase this question. Did did Mark Arm think you were messing with him when you introduced yourself? A little bit. I. Had, I'd spoken to to Mark <laughs> for the initial sub pop oral history because, as you know, he you okay. know he's on so he knew he was you mud the honey. Book. He was he was on mud honey, and he I mean, he was working at sub pop in the, and still does works in the um, what do you call it uh, the the mail the mail room right I mean he's like sending out packages you know he's the manager of that I guess. And so, yeah, it was a little weird. It was it was more weird with people I'd contact them, and I mean, it was a good icebreaker, right? Because you're like, oh, Mark Yarm, Mark Arm, that's funny, haha. It was a good icebreaker, and um, I do have a, a picture with I, I met Mark Arm. I mean, I've met him on a couple of occasions, but uh, at the Sub Pop 20th anniversary, I have a picture. I call it Mark Yarm and Mark Arm, Arm and Arm. Because we're like have our arms around each other, so it's uh, uh. Or it's yeah. So we uh, it's a little weird. I mean, uh, it's a little confusing. But I mean, for a while, I had on all my accounts like this is not Mark Yarm. You know, people confuse mm. us. It, it is a little confusing. But uh, Mark Yarm is my real name. It is not Mark Arm's real Correct. name. So um, I think I have. More of a stake. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, 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 what is the genealogy of Yarm? It's not a name I'm familiar with. Uh, it's uh, it was short, and my you know, like my family came from Eastern Europe. It was it used to be Yarmovsky, so okay. now it's just Yarms. There aren't that many Yarms out there. Well, you you actually touched on something that that's coming up here that that uh, that that run, lighting the moat on fire story. Um, mm-hmm. That that was the human, right? Correct. Okay, but that, that's one of the examples of like where different people remember very specific things in totally different ways that I, I really enjoy for some reason. Like I think they all had a different song that they were playing when it happened. 
And, and it's yeah. just funny reading it because you go from one to one to one, and it's like, now yeah, we're and they're and it's not written like, no, 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 he's wrong. It's this. They're they're just retelling the exact same thing. It just, uh, I don't know. I think that actually adds to the enjoyment of it. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain Rashomon-like quality to the remembrance of these things. <clears throat> I mean, sometimes it's more of a conversation between people about, no, I didn't do this, mm. so-and-so did this, or, you know, I mean... Yeah, some are more uh, important than a, what song you were playing, too, you know. They're, yeah, yeah. But doing a project like this, you realize how malleable memory is <laughs> and, and how fallible and malleable I mean, people will twist it to, I mean... I don't have the best memory of myself, so uh, it's amazing what people can remember. Although, it's amazing what people can remember from 20, 30 years ago, but this was also, for many people, like, I mean, it's their, their early 20s and kind of the peak. I mean, what could be more exciting than being abandoned in your early 20s? Right. So, they tend to remember, and I'm sure these are well-worn road stories, a lot of them. So. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. It's... Uh, you know, it's definitely interesting to see how different people remember things differently and and what uh, who becomes the villain and who becomes the hero in these stories. So it gets uh, t- um, kind of debated a little bit, like who was actually the, should be called the first grunge band. Uh, do you have your own take on that? Um, do I have my own take? Um, I mean, who would you consider the first one? You know, there there are people that saying you know that grunge definitely. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you know, there's definitely a lot of debate about the etymology of the word grunge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there That's was, a fun you know, part, too. Uh, Steve Turner of Mudhoney says, that, like, you know, he first saw the name in a record from the 50s or something, Grungy Guitars. So, uh, and, you know, there's, uh, there's a whole chapter in the book dedicated mm-hmm. to, like, this idea of when, when grunge came out. I mean, Sub Pop, the label was sort of popularized the word by using it in their marketing materials and that became a marketing term and then it became what we know today as you know grunge sort of an amorphous thing but we you kind of know it when you hear it so um i don't know i uh i mean you could say black sabbath was a grunge band i mean you know you could obviously they had a huge influence on yeah uh grunge band i mean i wouldn't consider them one but they were they were definitely an influence um but you know i i think those first you know the 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 bands on the deep six is Mm -hmm. kind of where i started grunge so like in 85 86 or so so when did you you first uh hear deep six or hear about it that that compilation that's a good question i don't know it's not like it's not like a. I mean, I I don't know. I think people would argue. I mean, I, all the people who had songs on there, I don't think they would think that that was their best work right. by any means. Yeah. So um, I don't know when I heard about Deep Six. It must have been like. I mean, I'm sure I read about it well before I did the book, and and uh, um, I can't recall. But uh, it wasn't. It's not like an album that lots of people have or but (laughs) it's definitely a landmark album in its own way Mm -hmm. um and i can't say it's like an album i listen to very often but uh 
I, I ask because I heard uh, by going through this list, that was my first exposure to it. And then even just tracking down the audio of it was a little it's bit of a challenge. It's an on the list? It is. It's like number 23. So, oh. so we, we went through that record. It was... Uh, it was fun, you know, as a fan of the bands, kind of hearing like the the early almost uh, I don't know versions of of, of these guys, like before mm-hmm. they kind of were able to morph into the the level that they got to. So a, as a listener, I enjoyed that with the Melvins and Soundgarden, especially two of the the bands I like down there. But um, but yeah, I mean it's it is what it is, you know what I mean? It's a local band, you know, kind of deal. So, mm-hmm. but I had never I'll- heard about it back in the day. And what album are you up to in in the current podcast? We we the next we just posted um, last week uh, Stone Temple Pilot Core, and the next okay. one coming up that we recorded just this weekend is going to be Pearl Jam versus. Gotcha. Yeah, I was I was considering doing for the book. Originally, it was like a little bit more expensive. Like I, I reached out to like Stone Temple Pilots and Bush and Silverchair, but. For the most part, none of them wanted to do it. Yeah, really. <laughs> I didn't think they liked the grunge association. So I, I, I did, a, as you, you've probably read, the, the, the chapters on Candlebox. Um, and they were kind of the the punching bag for, for most of these guys. Like the, People hate Candlebox. But they were actually from, almost entirely from Seattle. But mm-hmm. there was always this rumor that they were from la and that they had you know just come in in the gold rush that came after nirvana and pearl jam but um yeah so there was there was i mean it was enough as is but it became a lot more seattle centric i didn't cover like i mean obviously bush are from the uk and silver chairs from australia and stunt temple pilots from san diego so um became a little bit more focused on seattle yeah, and well, I mean, it's fair to say that is where everything kind of grew from. So, um, anybody that kind of right. came in after, it's I don't know. I thought it was a good way to focus on it. I mean, and plus the book's long enough as it is. I mean, it's like five hundred and sixty pages. True, true. I, I don't think uh, they would have published much longer than that. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it definitely helped me focus. You know, some sometimes who would talk to you would help you focus down. But uh, I mean, I think. Uh, Candlebox was a good uh, representation of the sort of vitriol. That, I mean, yeah. over time, Stone Temple Pilots have become a lot more respected. I don't know if you remember how they were kind of maligned back in the day. Mm, we they, got they into that. Play, by yeah, by this play. guy. Yeah. yeah they, oh, by you. Yeah. Uh, it took me a uh, while to, were, get, uh, to get over that little bit of bias because it did seem yeah. like they were opportunist at the time. Yes, yes. And... Um, I mean, if you listen to the album, the first album, they they definitely were, <laughs> so in my in my humble opinion. But um, yeah, I still stick with that. It's still good music. But yeah, I don't know. I just oh, uh, and then you did Versus, which was a huge album. That was huge. If you remember, that. I mm. guess it, Versus and and In Utero came out. They were in competition. They came out around the same time. I think in Utero was coming much, up yet. Better. Um, yeah. And what's the what's the number one on the Rolling Stone list? It's uh, Never Mind. Ah, bold. Not, not a big shock, huh? Yeah. Uh, the Andrew Wood stuff. Now, have you seen the documentary on him that's on YouTube? I have. Um, I have. I think. The, the malfunction documentary. There we go. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I just yeah. was blanking me. No, it's okay. Um, it's 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 really good. I like that a lot. I thought that was, I watched that. Um, actually, somebody sent me a copy of it before it came out. So I kind of got a sneak preview of that. 
when it was still doing the festival circuit. Mm-hmm. And I quite like that one. Yeah. Yeah. For as low budget as it is, it's actually pretty well done. Yeah. There are a couple. I mean, I didn't like some of the interstitial effects and stuff, but I thought content wise, it was really good. There are a bunch of. I mean, there are a bunch of grunge documentaries. Um, I like the Tad one a lot. Hmm. I would check that one the, out. Yeah, you should check that one out. Um, Tad had, you know, a very tumultuous career. And the same people did a Mud Honey doc, okay. which which was good, but I think suffered from, I guess Mud Honey didn't have as, you know, it didn't have as much hardship and, and controversy. And there wasn't a much dramatic arc as there was to the Tad documentary, which I thought was really good. Um, Mud Honey is largely the same four guys, right? Is it all four, or is it just three of the four? Three of the four, okay. yeah. So Matt Lucan left, okay, and then bassist. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they're all nice guys. I mean, they had obviously there's there some dramatic tension there, but it wasn't like Tad where they got like, you know, their record pulled. And they had controversy with a supposed con. You know, they got dropped from multiple labels, and they had this big brash front man it was it's just like a totally different story so um but i would recommend that todd i think it's called ringing ears and busted circuits if i'm not mistaken that's a good documentary um i mean obviously hype yeah is 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 the standard bearer i talked to the uh director doug prey who was quite kind and quite a good guy and uh you know kind of he came in like very late and like Grunge had kind of peaked or was peaking when he came in, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are like, "What? What are you doing? Why, why are you doing this?" <laughs> <laughs> but he would not be he would not be uh, talked out of it. So that's a really good documentary. So I would check that one out too if you're. I have seen good, that that's, one. Yeah, that's a good overview for the listener uh, out there. If you want to get a good grunge overview, I'd say hype. Start with that first. But back to the Andrew Wood stuff, uh, and, oh, and sure. um, I got kind of a, a slightly more—I don't know—depressing version of Andrew's home life from your book than I did from that documentary. Probably largely because your book wasn't—it wasn't put together to be a celebration necessarily of any one thing. You know what I mean? So maybe, right. um, and it was just through, through some of the—I can't remember who who was talking about it, but he talked about how they moved a lot. And um, and there was constant fighting where that stuff is, is talked about in the documentary. So in fairness, right. I, I'm not trying to say they, they glossed over it, but they definitely they made it seem like, well, things sure once in a while things got rough. But, you know, you know, but I don't know. Uh, it seemed like there was a little more honesty, especially with the uh, the breakup of Malfunction or not. Yeah, right. Malfunction was the band yeah. with his brother. Correct. Yeah. And, and where they never really got to deal with that. You know the fact that he kind of bailed on them to do Mother Love Bone and didn't really have a conversation with his brother about that. So yeah. that detail, you know, kind of sucks. But it's more painted in your book a, a little cleaner than that documentary does. Yeah. Well, I mean that that's one of the advantages of the written word over uh, a documentary. I mean, obviously, you can go into a lot more granular detail. And uh, yeah, I mean that that's a notable thing of like like. Uh, you know, lack of communication, <laughs> you know, just like, oh, I'm just going to quit the band, but not tell anybody or, you know, something like that, like, or we're going to replace you with a new drummer, but oh, right. you know, you're only, 
you're only going to find out when you walk in on practice or, but you know, it's just like, I mean, but you think about it, these were 18 year old, non-communicative like dudes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it wasn't like they were hashing. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of hashing things out, but there was a, also a lot of passive aggressive behavior and, um, yeah, there, it was just like, you got to keep in mind that these are teenagers, basically mm-hmm. late teenagers. So, had you heard of uh, Mother Lovebone before he died? I had not. You know, I'm, I'm putting myself before he died. Uh, that's a good question. So he died. In, I'm going to say 91. I don't have it right in front of me. Yeah, um, I think that's right, but, but I'm not positive. Yeah, um, the dates always become a little blurry. Yeah. But um, had I? That's a good question. I mean, I don't like that name for a band. <laughs> I think it's a terrible name. <laughs> yeah, I do too. But, uh, um, but uh, had I heard of him, I don't recall. But, uh, Pearl Jam had definitely broke before I ever heard any story about him at all or any, all that stuff. So, right, right. Uh, and then, and, but yeah, I mean, by all accounts, they were poised. You know, I mean, Andrew Wood was a. <clears throat> I mean, you can see it in that film that you yeah. talked about. Super charismatic, and just a uh, wonderful performer. So you know, he probably could have broken through, and you know, he was certainly. Uh, Certainly seemed destined to get there. He seemed like he wanted to leave the band, though, and be a solo artist. Uh, At least that's the impression I got watching that documentary. He was like, kind of frustrated with the band dynamics and how things have to be somewhat political at times. Well, I'm sure he could have done his own uh, solo stuff and and had foot in both both those worlds. But I guess we'll obviously never find out. But... um, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was certainly, by all accounts, he was he was going to be a star. Always, I mean, he always acted like a star. Yeah. Was, everyone talks about how he would say, "Oh, well, Seattle," when he was in like a, you know, like some divey little club and yeah. playing playing to the imaginary rafters. You know, there was no upper balcony, <laughs> but he. You was see protect- footage of that in the movie where he does some yeah. of that. It's pretty hilarious, actually, because. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was by all accounts like a super hilarious guy. So. Um, I think you, you know, and they kind of had like a little bit of a, they had one foot in grunge. They had like, they you know, kind of look at them. They look a little guns and rosesy. Mm-hmm. I could see them fitting into that Melu a little bit. So, um, it's quite possible they could have done well, sure. you know. Well, musically it was, it was right on path with, with Pearl Jam, obviously. So, yeah, yeah. I, I did like the story of him meeting David Lee Roth when he was younger. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and he's like, I got, I'm on a schedule, son. <laughs> I thought that was just a. I could just see from what I understand about Andrew Wood that that would be a big moment for him. But I could I could see that. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to meet David Lee Roth. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, did, maybe uh, maybe put out in the universe and help you come on your podcast. Yeah, right on. Yeah, I'd, uh, it's one step at a time, man. Um, <laughs> from Mark Arm to David Lee Roth. Right on. Yeah, six degrees of separation. Steps. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know him. Sorry. But uh, uh, <laughs> well, maybe someday you will know him. And anyway, uh, hey, Kim Thale. Uh, he, obviously, you talked to him. And yeah. uh, by the way, my pre- I've always wondered how his, his name is pronounced. Is that right? Do you know Thale? I mean, I've kind of like fudged a little bit. It's Thale File Thale okay. Thale. Thale. All right. I I probably pronounce it both ways. But uh, yeah, he's a great guy though. 
Okay, that's my question. Like, I think he kind of comes off just. Is a, he a great guy? A t- no, he comes off a tad prickly in interviews. Sometimes I just was curious what. Uh, I actually uh, just wanted to know what your experience was like with him. You know, I'm actually uh, of all the people I still keep in touch with him. Um, you know, mostly you know text him every once in a while or whatnot. But uh, he's a super good guy, super funny, super smart. Uh, I mean, he can be a little prickly, I guess, when you ask a dumb question or something. Not that I ask, <laughs> not that I ask oh, a dumb go. question, but uh, that's my job. Uh, he's very protective of his privacy, and uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I can only imagine, you know, since Chris Cornell has died, how that has kind of affected him. And, yeah. You know, obviously, people want to know the details of that. And, I'm sure he doesn't want to share too much, but um, yeah, he's a great guy, though. Um, was there anybody that you wanted to talk to that that didn't want to be involved that was actually part of the scene? I know you mentioned some of the like the uh, Bush and those kind of guys, but uh, yeah. what, what about? I mean, I scene? ended up using some sort of some archival stuff for for some of the members of Pearl Jam who I couldn't talk to because Pearl Jam, if you might recall, we're doing their 20th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the Cameron Crowe documentary in their own book. So, I mean, I, I talked to all the Pearl Jam drummers. So there were five Pearl Jam drummers. I talked to all of them, which I thought was a good feat. I pulled that off. Uh, and which, as you might notice, I don't Have you seen the Cameron Crowe documentary? The, the 20? Yeah. Yeah, I have. It's kind of mediocre, I think. Really? Um, it's a, yeah. It, there, really there's, it's, it's celebratory, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I think it would have been much better documentary had they gotten the voices of like uh, the drummers in there. If you notice, they're not in there except for Matt Cameron, mm. I believe. And um, it, it, it's very like felt a little Wikipedia to me. Like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But as a fan, I enjoyed it. But I think I don't uh, disagree with a single point you're making. You know what I mean? Didn't love it. Didn't love it. I thought it was kind of like too light a touch and and just a little bit of a hagiography i don't know it just didn't really appeal to me i when i saw it i was like unimpressed i've been listening to kiss since i was seven though so my standards are really low oh okay well <laughs> um okay well oh you, well, you should read this new book um at uh, david broad uh who's a friend of mine wrote it's coming out soon i think it next month mm-hmm. december uh, did i call him david broad yeah or did I, call him I think broad? it's david broad but i then... it's not right i, I... <laughs> you guys <laughs> sound close uh i doug broad i'm sorry I've, yeah. i said the wrong name terrible me anyway it's a good book i blurbed it it's called they just seem a little weird it's about kiss cheap trick aerosmith and stars which hmm. was kind of a band i had never heard of and all these bands in the late seventies and how they redefined rock and roll and they they have very like interest. It's it's not oral history. It's a you know just a okay just a regular regular history and how all these bands intertwined. Well, it's if really Gene good. Simmons and Paul Stanley weren't involved at all, it might be pretty good. But oh, uh, uh, they don't they don't take uh, they don't. Uh, take I think sh- he, he interviews Paul Stanley in the book. So okay, and well, maybe, maybe some I, other. You should check it out. I'll definitely check it out. But I I would um I would venture to to guess or hypothesize that Paul Stanley won't say a single thing I haven't already heard him say a few times. <laughs> Although you know Paul's book is a fascinating book. I mean it's is it? it's very chippy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of cheap shots, but you know, I mean, it's just, as far as entertainment, I don't really know. 
if I could, you know, gloss a lot of reality out of it, but I don't know. Right. A little bit on the on Pearl Jam because um and, and I won't say it for the recording. If if you if you care to, I'll tell you off off uh when we're all oh. done here. But uh, there was one person I interviewed who, during the course of the interview, had a bunch of very nice things to say about him, about them as a band. And afterwards... Oh, about Pearl Jam. Yeah. Afterwards, he asked me to not include that, if I could take that out. And I thought that was odd. I've never had anybody ask me to take out a compliment they had for somebody. You know what I mean? Typically, it's like, maybe I shouldn't have gone there. Do you mind taking that out? That kind of thing. There is... I'm I'm learning through reading your book more than than I think I, I understood when that was time. I'm guessing that's because there's a lot of people who look at them like they basically kind of turn their back on on every everything from Andrew Wood to the Seattle scene and that 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 kind of beef we talked about early on between them and Nirvana. Um, did you encounter much of that in 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 your research that like there are kind of some negative feelings towards those guys from that scene? Yeah, I mean, I think there there definitely were, but more. I mean, I guess because they people, weren't the only successful band, but they seemed to take a heap load of that more than say Soundgarden or Nirvana. Right. It's it's odd that people would be. I mean, people were very complimentary of Pearl Jam because they, whether you like their music or not, they conduct business in a way that you know they they're all for the good socially. You know, they took on Ticketmaster. Failed, but you know they, they still tried. Um, you know they 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 support all the correct left wing causes uh, that you would want them to support. They supposedly treat their crew and staff and everything very well. It's kind of a family situation. So I'm surprised that somebody somebody would. I mean, more it would. I would think people not wanting to have a crossword about them getting out because, you know, they still, they're still a big business mm-hmm. and they still, you know, they're still touring with, you know, and, um, they, uh, you know, you don't want to, you know, some people I spoke to who were still employed by them many, many years later in whatever capacity, you know, whether as a stage hand or, or a roadie or whatnot. So, um, it's unusual that somebody would say don't. Maybe they didn't want to seem too ass kissy. Okay. I don't know. Oh, it's almost like there's like some street cred he, he's worried about losing or something. Oh, you know what did. I mean? <laughs> I, I, you don't want to praise the. I mean, I don't know. At this point in 2020, I don't know. It doesn't seem you, like. I wouldn't think so, but I, I found it surprising, but some of it was validated reading your book. But. Um, Anyway, uh, other things I found surprising, I, Kurt Cobain actually had designs on being a massive rock star. It, that kind of goes yeah. against his narrative, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I think anyone who's read, I mean, there's there's a bunch of Nirvana biographies, and I think anyone who's read them knows that he had very conflicting feelings about fame. On one hand, he really, really desired it, and he wrote about it in his journals, and um you know, and talk about it with other people, Courtney Love, for instance. But then on the other hand, I mean, he came from this, this underground punk rock scene where that was sort of reviled. So he, I mean, he was very conflicted about it, super conflicted. But he wanted it, and he didn't want it. I think he wanted it, but in a way that <laughs> wouldn't make him on MTV every minute. Although apparently, you know, I talked to Danny Goldberg, his manager, Nirvana's manager, and, uh, you know, he said that Kurt would used to count how many times Nirvana's video played versus how many times Pearl Jam's video mm. played. 
So, uh, and then, you know, basically be noting that. And so it's a pretty well-known t- push and pull between wanting to be famous and not wanting to be famous. I mean, I think that, that I, I don't want to be armchair psychiatrist, but I think it fed into... Yarm chair. Like- <laughs> Yarm chair. <laughs> Never. That's a good one. Um, no, I, I, I think it led to, you know, a lot of his, uh, I mean, he had heaps of other problems. But that oh, right. Was, uh, de- de- definite. Uh, well, speaking of heaps definite, of problems, uh, how many times yes. did you talk to Courtney Love? I, just, I think I spoke to her like four or five times. Any, any crazy nuts stories with her? I mean, you, you see some of it in the book at one point. Yeah. I mean... She kind of breaks the fourth wall a little bit. She's like, "I'm going to hang up on you if you ask that question." You know, like she she kind of raised her voice to me a few times, but like to what Courtney must be like, you know, on a scale of one to ten, it was probably like a two. Okay. But to me, so to, to me, it felt like, "Oh my god, this lady's yelling at me." But um, yeah, she was very giving of her time, which I, I am thankful for. And originally, she said she wasn't going to talk about Kurt, but then of course she started talking about Kurt. Yeah. Right away. So, um, yeah, there, there was, there was a lot. I mean, I've kind of, I didn't, don't follow her on Twitter anymore. So I'm not sure where she's at right now. Uh, do you know? I don't know. I'm, I've never really been a fan. I, I think she's interesting as a character, but, uh, I, I, I mean, she's interesting as a character, but I love her music too. I mean, I love the first three whole albums. I'm pretty are, sure. Are, I'm gonna, any of, are any of those on the list? Yep, it's coming up. Live whole, through this must be right. Yep, live through this is like five, I think. And I'm I mean, pretty sure a, that my research for that is going to make me or expand my my knowledge of whole and Courtney. That is an incredible album. I, really, I will, I will go to the mat for that one. And I, I think it's super sexist. I mean, Courtney Love deserves a lot of the criticism that's lobbed against her because she could in many cases be an awful person but you know the whole idea that Kurt Cobain wrote the album or was like really instrumental in writing it you know I think it's just sexist stuff and erasure of her and of you know like Eric Erlinson who is the mm-hmm. guitarist in the whole who obviously wrote a bunch of that I mean I think the next album obviously uh Celebrity Skin uh you know, Billy Corgan was heavily involved in. I think that you know it's pretty credited, but I thought that uh, was I, largely that music, though. I, I I've always thought that she was. I, I guess again, I, I'm not an expert. Oh, lyrically, yeah, yeah, I thought that she, that her yeah, contribution was lyrics largely lyrics and melody, yeah. and and you know, it's it's not an uncommon trait in songwriting to have somebody who writes music with you, and then you kind of right. do that, you know, so. Yeah, but I, I think she was super maligned in in artistically. I mean, she did some awful things to some people, and yeah, okay. was obviously erratic and and <laughs> uh, and uh, and could be quite cruel to people. So, I mean, I can see how she could like just like be nor like happy go lucky and then turn on a dime like when you're talking to her. So, um, yeah, but I was grateful for her to give the time for sure yeah she uh, i saw a hole at a at, at a, like a radio station festival in 98 and uh she had a great meltdown on stage that uh was one of the highlights of the day i can't remember what she said anymore but for life of me but she went off man i can't remember it was 98 by the time she had like the new band with the dudes behind her oh man yeah i, I think uh, all the years blurred together but that was a pretty I think so because the Samantha Maloney was in Motley Crue by that point, I believe. 
Uh, but it was uh, it was uh, the all guys. Yeah, I, I honestly don't recall. It probably it, was, it seems like the timelines yeah. right because that happened where that was after Celebrity Skin, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm guessing sure. by by the way you're talking about Courtney that that uh, you're convinced that she did not have Kurt Cobain murdered. Um. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, I think that's I mean, I, address, I address that in the book a little bit because I didn't want to give too much credence to conspiracy yeah. theories. I think that's I mean, I've said it before. I'll say it again. She most definitely did not assuredly did not have anything. I mean, did not have him murdered. Mm-hmm. You know, whether whether the relationship, obviously, the relationship fed into his mental state at the time that I believe 100 percent he killed himself of his own volition. And I mean, she wasn't even in town at the time. I mean, I think that um, there's a documentary. Uh, is it called Doused in Bleach? I think uh, which I saw, and which is you know just is that the, the one where old... they reenact the the private investigator? Yeah. Okay, I watched with, it. Too. Uh, Tom Grant, um, who's made basically a career for the past. However many years it's been, uh, twenty five years or so of of investigating this case. Again, I haven't, I've I've kind of tapered off on on uh, how much I I pay attention to that. But I mean, it's it's sort of almost like a little bit embarrassing that he's still harping on that so many years later. Like mm-hmm. some, just some local private investigator. I mean, people get really into the case, and it's really sad because then like a new generation of kids who didn't know weren't there didn't know about it um sort of see something like that documentary and then become you know convinced that it's true uh i mean all the signs point to it not being true and i mean the guy was a prodigious heroin user (laughs) uh and and you know any any and you know depressed I mean, people say, "What well, he had a daughter," and but I, I think a lot of people. It's also, I mean, I, I suffer from depression, so it's somebody who doesn't understand. I mean, not like Kurt Cobain, mind you. It's not that sort of level of depression, thankfully. But um, you know, they don't understand like what the mindset of a depressed person is, especially one with stomach problems and a heroin addiction and uh, this fame that is you know, probably, probably more ruinous than, than good at that point. You know, there were rumors that he was, you know, on the verge of divorcing Courtney at that point, whether that's true or not, who knows, but you know, he was, his his life was not in a good place Hmm. despite the fame and the fortune and having a newborn daughter. So people don't understand that. Um, and it's unfortunate and the whole conspiracy stuff is kind of sickening and um, I mean Courtney did a lot of things wrong but she did not she did not have <laughs> her husband killed I mean there's also that Kurt and Courtney documentary which I guess is I mean it's it, have you seen that one the, I haven't oh, watched that, that one but um... okay that that one also explores the uh the conspiracy theories there. So, Are, now, do they leave it more open than the one? Because that one basically says this is what happened, people. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a little more open ended, but they have like uh, El Duce of the mentors. Uh, I did see that, that one. Oh, you okay. Did see that I'm one. sorry. Yeah, that one. <laughs> Which was obviously it was like I, I 
I haven't seen that in a while, but he appeared to be under the influence of something when he was talking. I mean, this is obviously bullshit. <laughs> right. But, um, I mean, those, those films do a great disservice to, to... I mean, I understand why conspiracy theories exist, but it's just unfortunate. And it's unfortunate to, for all her many faults that, that Courtney has been tarred with, with that. Yeah, I mean, she's not a very sympathetic character, and that kind of works against her. You know, so, you know, maybe when she does something right, you know, it's just not going to get the attention that it might deserve. So, I mean, but it is now that you bring it up, it is amazing how like how benign those conspiracy. I mean, even though they're malicious, they're they're sort of benign compared to like the QAnon and all the uh, conspiracy theories that are going on now about cobbles of like Hollywood sex perverts draining the mm. the life essence of kids and stuff. I mean, it, like that makes the Kurt and Courtney stuff seem no pretty shit. Quaint. Yeah, really. Um, <laughs> so let's get back to that level oh. of, 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 no, I'm saying I'm with you. I'm like, I want the Kurt and Courtney kind of conspiracies, not the shit we're dealing with now. Pizza gate and all that garbage. And I want, I want conspiracies like Stevie wonder isn't blind. Or oh, something yeah. Like that. Something like, something like harmless yeah you know it's like fun and harmless how, and how does that even become a thing how who decides one day is stevie wonder really blind or has he been faking it for 40 years or apparently there's some video that shows that he's you know <laughs> reacting, like catches like, a ball <laughs> yeah i don't know what it, i don't know what it is but uh like, i don't believe that one either i don't believe pretty much any conspiracy theories so. yeah for the most part i don't either they, they exist without evidence despite evidence uh but yeah as much as it's fun because these these are bands and, and albums especially now we're getting into the sweet spot on the list for the big hitters you know what i mean um but but i music takes you back you know what i mean it kind of puts you in that same sense of mind you were at, were at the time and it's it's been fun for me to kind of go back and remember that part of my life but right. one thing that is like a dark cloud over all this, too, is just all the people that aren't here with us anymore because there was a lifestyle that, that these guys were living that, that took so many of these people from us. You know what I mean? You know, we, we've talked about yeah. Andrew Wood, but, you know, Chris Cornell is gone recently. You know, uh, Lane, of course. And, and you know, the one that we were just talking about, Kurt Cobain. Uh, um, was there any part, like, while compiling this together where things got to the almost, almost depressing for yourself to kind of realize, you know, what was going on here. And, you know, yeah. just, just the tone of the, the darkness where it, it almost had an effect on you, if that makes any sense. I, yeah, there was a lot of stuff. I mean, I remember a few late-night conversations with people talking about their heroin usage. It got really dark, and it was like, uh, it was hard to go to sleep after that. And I actually, I spoke to Mike Starr, who was, you know, the bassist and mm. Allison Chase. I spoke to him the, the day he died or the day before he died i was oh, on the phone boy. with him briefly and he was like at the doctor's office or something and then like the then the next day i found out he died it was it was it was it was super dark i mean he was he was in trouble i mean i don't know if you recall he was like on dr drew's mm-hmm. show and he was in rehab or out of rehab and um he was definitely uh using at that point so uh it was it was not not uh, pretty. So I mean, I, I I got to talk to him like somewhat, but it was shocking to have somebody like die the next day or two days later. You know, that is really heavy. Did you um, did you find him believable? Uh, I he seems to have 
a reputation for not being the the most reliable. Yeah, I, I don't think he was the most reliable person. I mean, I think he was a little bit of a fabulist, and and uh, I'm not sure what what to believe of what he said. And, okay. You know, I don't know what was said under the influence, or you know. Yeah. So um, I'm not trying to dig, yeah, throw was... dirt on the guy. I'm just really you know, asking. <laughs> right. Well, how about on a more positive note? What are some of your favorite stories from the book? Huh. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I like the story about you know there wasn't there isn't that much new Nirvana stuff. So I like the story that Bruce Pavitt of Sub Pop told about um, talking to Kurt Cobain backstage at SNL when they were on the first time, and Kurt Cobain like this was the weekend that they they. Um, uh, unseated Michael Jackson for the top of the charts with Nevermind. And Kurt Cobain was like in a good mood and musing about, you know, how he could open a petting zoo or something, which, which Bruce Pavitt <laughs> pointed out was very much like, like a Michael Jackson sort of thing, you know, yeah. like Neverland Ranch sort of thing. And then, then of course, he pointed out that Kurt Cobain famously overdosed that night. So, you know, it kind of pointed out that the, 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 um, the happy-go-lucky side of Kurt Cobain, the, the, and the, and obviously the very dark side. So um, I don't know. There are a lot, there's just so many stories, you know, like the Melvins' um, encounter with uh, Shirley Temple Black. Mm, that was uh, good. Who, who's the 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 mom of their bassist at the time? And, and uh, wasn't um, I swear you covered in the book, but uh, Buzz was dating her, right? Yeah, Buzz was dating Lori Black, who was was Lorax. Lorax, and they got to meet her. So yeah, I, I talked to Lorax quite a bit on the phone, but she never wanted to go on the record, unfortunately. So wow, uh, yeah, yeah. It's was very, there some uh, salacious stuff there? Or uh, yeah, yeah, you might say so. Okay. But, I mean, I think also because of um, I think her mom, her mom was definitely still alive at that point. I don't okay. think she wanted to embarrass the family any further. All right. Know. Well, fair enough. I just that's, that's kind of surprising. I didn't think she would have anything that out, out there. But uh. what about uh, Mark Lonigan? He um, he graciously passed to be a part of this project, right. um, even though he's got a new album to promote and a book that recently came out. Now, his book apparently I haven't had a chance to read it, but it is apparently one of the most brutally honest retelling of a of a drug addict. Uh, how how is yeah. he? He's in your book. I mean, you you, you must have. Well, tried- I didn't talk to him. I I, I used. Uh, okay. So archival stuff. Yeah, he did not want to participate. He does not particularly like the book. So, oh, um, nice. In some ways, it might have uh, encouraged him to write his own book. So, really, you that think uh, that's a catalyst, huh? Uh, well, I read an interview with him where he mentioned that. So, um, but the rest of the sm- uh, smashing puppies, the rest of the. Uh, <laughs> The uh, screaming, screaming trees, trees spoke, spoke to me, so that was cool. There, you know, like the the Connor brothers and the drummers, and I I, I enjoyed talking with Gary. Um, oh yeah, you talked to Gary. That's cool because he doesn't. He's like kind of shy and doesn't really talk as much as like Van. So that's a good get. Yeah, no, I read it. Well, thank you. Uh, I tried to get in Van too, but I never heard back. Uh, oh. Gary seemed to intimate that Van might be drinking a little too much right now. Um, but, uh, it's quite possible. Yeah. I mean, quite, I mean, it's, uh, it's a lot of, a lot of drinking in this scene. I mean, that, that's the thing also, like you think you say, um, 
like grunge was so related to you know is so intertwined with heroin mm-hmm. used in the public's mind but i mean a lot of uh, a lot of these people were just straight up alcoholics as but yeah know, they were uh, there were a lot of heroin addicts but there were a lot of alcoholics as well i mean i guess they're two two sides but and and a lot of times they didn't really mix you know heroin's a very like backroom cd sort of thing and sure and alcohol is obviously a little bit more front and center so um but that that's definitely uh definitely a possibility you know, and uh, Chris Cornell, uh, it came up in the, that documentary on Andrew Wood, but it's touched on in your book that he was actually sober for, for a pretty good chunk of time. Yeah. And, and if I understand right towards the end here, the, the drugs he was dealing with were more like antidepressives, kind of uh, maybe overprescribed kind of things. So it sounded like that, yeah. Do, do you know anything about like any uh, substance abuse issues uh, that he might have had, I don't know, during like the heyday of Soundgarden? No, I mean, from what I gather from, from, I mean, he was, he used drugs early on and then he quit and then he was like, I don't think he took up the drinking and drugging until much later, until his 40s or, or okay. so. So, uh, I mean, I know he was, you know, I mean, he spoke quite openly about that. Well, let me ask you this. Up to this point, the one band that, I, f- I feel I missed out on it at the time was Screaming Trees. When we did that record, Sweet Oblivion, I was like, this uh-huh. was right in my zone, especially for that time. I mean, it, it's a masterful record. Is there a band from that scene that you think probably deserved a little bigger of a shot than maybe they got? Maybe maybe they're a lot like the Screaming Trees where they kept kind of shooting themselves in the foot a little bit? I mean, I think Mud Honey. I mean, I, they're they're rightfully recognized as kind of the godfathers of mm-hmm. grunge or whatever, however you want to describe them. But I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, originally sub pop thought that mud honey, not Nirvana were going to be their big breakup band, right. you know, the band that, that rode to fame and fortune, but they weren't, they were kind of, uh, just though. I mean, I, I mean, I think mud, you know, Mark arm or, or Steve Turner has described them as a footnote or something in grunge history. But, I mean, they're just a. I mean, Super Fuzz Big Muff must be on that Rolling Stone list. Yeah, that's right? coming up. Yeah, and that is that. That's my favorite grunge album, I would say. So I think that's uh, that's uh, it. Kind of epitomizes grunge, and all the songs are great. And it's just a. Uh, I mean, Touch Me, I'm Sick is as <laughs> as great an anthem for grunge as you can get. I think so. Yeah, there are there are a lot of bands. I mean, Tad as you'll see in that documentary, if you watch it is, uh, we're kind of poised for bigger things, but kept shooting themselves in the foot, and, you know, a lot of bands. And I, uh, one of the things I tried to do in the book was try to be, and I think what some of the pe- people who spoke to me appreciated was it wasn't just about the big four bands. It was about right. the tads and the money honeys and seven year bitch and L seven and malfunction and the U men and just, maybe names that people aren't familiar with but were integral to the scene would uh well the book's named after mud honey lyric right yeah okay mm-hmm. um and would mud honey be your favorite band from that scene uh definitely one of them i'm mean, certainly a nirvana guy mud honey i mean i like bleach would probably be my second favorite grunge album i would say so um but yeah yeah all right well uh what about favorite album do you have a favorite album from that time well, I would say it was be super fuzz, big muffin and singles would be 
been my favorite. And a Bleach would be probably a second favorite. So, well within the Sub Pop family for sure. <laughs> Did you like uh, the, the 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 single soundtrack? Do you think that was uh, a decent representation? I, like, I do like the single soundtrack. Singles the movie. I I have a love hate relationship with. I think the movie itself is not great, but I love right. the I love the parts with the with the bands and it's just such a great time capsule of the Seattle scene and you know, the part where Tad picks mm-hmm. up the phone and the, the, <laughs> the guys in, in Pearl Jam being stoned watching the nature document. I don't know. I just love those parts, but as a romantic comedy, not so great, but as a, a sort of time capsule of Seattle and that era, definitely great. Well, do you still listen to anything? Uh, like how, how frequently do you dig, dig back to those albums? Uh, I mean, they come up. I have them in rotation in my Spotify or, you know, random. They come up. Um, so it's certainly, I mean, obviously sometimes it, it feels like a little bit like really, because I wrote about it, it feels like work. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I still listen to them quite often, I'd say. Are you going to do another music biography kind of book or anything like that? Probably not. Yeah, I mean, if I did another book, which I have no plans to do, it would probably be something totally different. But um, music is a young man's game. But, uh, well, I mean, maybe not. Uh, But, you know, know, as far as writing about music can be a young person's game for sure. Hey, how long did it take you to finish the book, like from when you started? It took like two and a half years okay. I'd say, say, you know from the time i did the oral history until i handed in you know until it came out so uh it was it was time consuming and very uh you know overtook my psyche i guess it was like the my one thing that i was focused on so it was uh it's a lot of work a lot of work i mean anyone who's written a book of any sort can tell you that yeah um well it is it is a fascinating book uh Mark, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I hope I was a, a gracious host. Um, you were very gracious. Your book, you said, uh, Everybody Loves Our Town, is available at pretty much anywhere you can get books. I mean, people go to Amazon for the most part. That's where I got mine. But, you know, there are still some Barnes & Nobles around that maybe have it on the shelf. Yeah, or yeah. go for an independent bookseller. Yeah, even yeah. better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, i got to keep with that grunge advise. cred, indie, right? IndieBound or, or Bookshop or one of those places. And, they, uh if anyone wants to look me up, I'm on Twitter. I'm always on Twitter. It's uh, at Mark Yarm. And some days, he has days that just suck, by the way. Yeah, I do have days that suck. But like <laughs> all of us, like all of us. But today is a good day. It ended well with this conversation about grunge. Baka, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate your time so much. We got so much material here. So this is awesome. So, uh, well, say hello to your wife, Bonnie. Did I get that right? Oh, you did! Yeah, I'm oh doing, my God, you're a stalker. I'm doing well. Either that, or just a re- <laughs> we call it research uh, on this side of the camera. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you. I will give her your regards. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good night, Mark. All right. Take care.
Go Vikings. They're playing tonight. Uh, go sports. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like my wife. Awesome. Have a good night, man. <laughs> Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.